This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Peter Fishman, co-founder and CEO of Mozart Data. The idea of let's build everything and let's be good at everything. And I think like this is like almost the kiss of death. Customers don't want good, customers want the best. You might say, well, the customer won't know the difference between good and the best. They will know the difference. What I think of as the way to win business is you have a small contract and you expand with a combination of the startup and the impact that you're having. So as you're helpful, that sort of growing within the company ends up being sort of a no-brainer. This is Peter. He's got over a decade of experience running data and data-adjacent teams at companies like Microsoft, Jammer, Opendoor, Playdom, and Ease. He realized that he was building the same type of modern data stacks at each company. And taking a broader perspective, he saw that many other companies were building the same data stacks over and over again as well. This inspired him and his co-founder Dan to found Mozart Data in 2020. Mozart Data is on a mission to make it easy for everyone to set up a modern data stack without a data engineer in under one hour. Why does it matter? Because that enables 10x more employees to get access to data, it decreases the time to get insights by 76% and delivers 30% cost savings compared to assembling your own data stack. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Peter to my podcast. We explore what is broken around the way we can embrace the full potential of data. Peter explains his vision on what can be when we can leverage the power of data as a first principle versus an afterthought. He also shares his lessons learned around what a SaaS application has to excel at to overcome the trust issues customers have and create a sustainable business from the start. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, that you can build a thriving business by working closely with your competitors. Secondly, that customers want the best product in the market, whether you like it or not. The opportunity is, they define best, no one else. Thirdly, what principles to follow to grow solid traction around adoption? And lastly, the moment when you know your vision is clear and powerful enough. 
Well, hi, Peter. Thank you for making the time today and being the guest on the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. It's something that I've been looking forward to after I got introduced to you by your old pal from Yammer, Daniel Erickson, who has been on the podcast. Exactly. A few interactions. You know, Dan and I have worked together at a couple of different spots. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember the one on Yammer, but that that was indeed, there was something before that as well. And yeah, then we, we spoke and I think what you're doing is something that is, yeah, it's definitely innovating, highly relevant to the audience here, typically if you're in the B2B tech space. And yeah, I just love the whole story around that. So let's get going with that. So to get started, if you would describe yourself in two or three words to characterize who you are as an entrepreneur, what words pop up? Instantly, a couple of things come to mind. So one is competitive. So a lot of entrepreneurs have that real competitive spirit. And sort of it's one of the things that got me into the data space, which is, you know, I love to sort of use numbers to, you know, progress an argument and to think about kind of, you know, what's working, what's not. And a lot of that sort of bubbles up from sort of internal competitiveness. I sadly don't have that sort of outlet in the form of real competitive sports. You know, I sort of ended my sort of athletic career, you know, a whopping five, seven. So I think that I ended my sort of real incredible athletic career, probably in middle school and found like an outlet for it. Not like in the math team, though, that was one of the dimensions I competed in, but more like just all sorts of sort of analysis being a big part of my life and in terms of uh, sort of scratching that competitive itch. You know, the second thing is like helpful. So I sort of identify a little bit with sort of like a golden rule and pay it forward mentality. I had an incredible run in startups growing my own career and, you know, having great mentorship and also sort of drafting off of an incredible team. So building a team and then watching their success sort of feed into my own sort of professional growth and development, but also my professional success. So a lot of what I think of in terms of startup building is paying some of that forward. In today's startup world, you know, there's so much less of the you outbound and harass people to, you know, try your product and then, you know, force it down, sort of a top-down kind of approach. Instead, Uh I think so much of, you know, startups today, you know, have to help somebody in the community. If you're selling to other startups, you have to help those startups on some dimension. And, you know, for me, it's largely in the data space, but it's also kind of how you get, you know, a company going and one of the ways is data, but there's other components to it, hiring, fundraising, little tips and tricks along the way. I kind of think of myself as like very tied into, you know, the community, the startup community. But so the adjectives I like are like sort of helpful and competitive, which actually sound kind of like counter to one another, but that's a very, yeah, I'm sure it's probably a pretty common thing where you have like sort of two very different sides of your personality that basically sort of aggregate into something kind of interesting yeah i mean i think it sets you apart and it's almost like i mean the first thought was okay so you help your competitors along the line as well <laughs> but that's where the competitive oh, are... that too in our industry which is uh-huh. a lot of our closest friends are also our competitors so we lose yeah. deals to the companies that are also the ones that are sort of pushing us along. So data is in a really nice place where it's got this great tailwind. So it's not like I'm starting a company in the, say, ride sharing space. And there's sort of like a fixed amount of, let's say, ride sharing. And it's like, 
if somebody takes a ride with me, they don't take a ride with Uber or Lyft. Yeah. Instead, in the data space, the biggest challenge is sort of making that tidal wave come quicker. And yeah. actually, you know, you mentioned like, you know, we're helpful with our competitors. I actually have gotten a ton of help from people that are really either directly competitive, adjacent competitive, or future competitive. So the types of, you know, sort of everybody gravitates towards the same problem, which is basically solving what customers are asking for. And like, you know, different people come at it from different ways. And that's kind of how I see kind of our space evolving. Yeah. Inspiring. I mean, uh, I think that there's an interesting take that you have on that. And I like that analogy that you have there to make the tidal wave come quicker, because that is really like the biggest gain that we got over the last two decades. First of all, the cloud came and then it was the delivery of the applications. And then a number of other things came along. But kind of the common thread here was that we could gather so much more data and with that fuel so much more products to solve yeah, very meaningful problems. So yeah, make the connection now to your company, Mozart Data, which you started in April 2020. That's what I saw. That's right. Um, Pandemic company. Yeah. What was the big idea behind it? What did you see? What did you experience yourself possibly where you said, okay, enough is enough. Let's do it. Let's fix it. Yeah. So sadly, it wasn't a great moment of insight. It was, what do we do? I think, you know, a lot of companies that I think make a lot of sense are, you know, exactly this, which is, what do I do at every single company when I walk through the doors? Or what are the tools that I really want to bring to every single company as like, you know, you walk in on day one. And ultimately, we just decided, you know, myself and my friend Dan of over 20 years, who, you know, basically worked in a similar, you know, function and role. Mm -hmm. We just decided, hey, we want to build this out as a service for any company. We don't want to go to, you know, one company and do this. We want to go to as many companies as we can and sort of build the sort of tooling that, you know, helps companies get started or that later companies tend to be able to afford or sort of, you know, build into their processes. And the sort of magic that you started to talk about at the beginning of the question, which is like, gosh, everybody's now collecting data. It's so inexpensive to collect the data. It's sort of this virtuous cycle of data where the data is now, you know, cheaper to collect, store, and like do compute on. And as a result, you can get insights reasonably and expensively, which makes people collect more data and invest more in, you know, folks like myself, you know, data folks that are skilled at, you know, analyzing the data. So you get this sort of real virtuous cycle that you've seen in the data space for years. And we wanted to make that, you know, accessible earlier and earlier. So typically, you know, companies get started with this a little bit later in their journey, because historically, you know, you mentioned, you know, 20 years ago, but even five or 10 years ago, you had to hire a bunch of data engineers and buy a bunch of tools and infrastructure and then hire, you know, folks that are going to be data savvy and be able to analyze the data just to get started. You could be talking about spending millions of dollars just to, you know, bet into getting your first set of insights that are going to sort of shape your business. Today, it's like a swipe of a credit card, you have sort of data savvy, but not necessarily heavily trained up folks or folks in adjacent spaces. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very, very different landscape. And we saw this trend, or we've been seeing this trend, like you said, for decades. And we just wanted to be part of the 
you know, movement that's accelerating this trend and watching companies be able to consume data is like something I'm very passionate about and excited about. And I sort of saw the continuation of that trend and we wanted to be really a big part of it. Cool. And who is your ideal audience? Is that an end user organization that's building something possibly? Is that a software company? Because for example, I realized that Dan is using your infrastructure to underpin his own application. Well, so not to really underpin his application, but to underpin his reporting. And I think we want to be like, you know, the easiest way to make data accessible to any company, really of all sizes, but we tend to focus on startups. So we really want the startup, whether it's Dan's or, you know, whether it's a larger late stage startup or a two person company, we want them to say, okay, this is an investment we want to make early on. Because if we set it up right now, it'll pay dividends, you know, over, you know, so many years. Yeah. So our sort of, you know, ideal looks like somebody that's going to be like data forward, data thinking, like wants to consume this, but maybe they don't have the resources to go hire the types of teams that I personally have worked on or built at like very late stage startups. I understand. Yeah. So it's almost, yeah, it's the data infrastructure as a service almost. That's how to think about it for sure. Yeah, yeah. What is the opportunity if the world starts to adopt this? How will the world start looking different possibly? Or how will companies be able to accelerate in different ways? So, you know, I think a lot about kind of the companies that I've worked at. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, I worked with Dan Erickson, a past guest. And, you know, Dan and I worked at this company, Yammer. And for Yammer, you know, sort of working on, the elements of the product that were important as evidenced by data. And you see all of these sort of, you know, big startups or public companies that have all of these tremendous data advantages. You know, they know which channels to invest in when they're doing marketing. They know which deals to go after when they're doing sales. They know which customers to focus on when they think about churn and retention. They know which part of the product is working and driving the business forward. And these are tremendous advantages. And you do want to level the playing field, right? Like in all things in life, like the more, you know, you want a healthy set of competition to basically bring about kind of the best products to market. and. You know, some of these sort of markets are such that because these sort of incumbents have such incredible data advantages, you don't get the best products bubbling up because of those data advantages. So, and Mozart data isn't really the entirety of this story. In fact, it's a very, 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 very small part of the story. But what I think of as the leveling of the playing field with respect to, you know, being able to build out data infra is... I think incredible. So if you think about like what Shopify did in terms of being able to bring DTC products to market. So, you know, if I had a great idea, I think one of the things that I love to mention is that Dan and I once ran a hot sauce company together Uh and the hot sauce company was a mostly DTC hot sauce. So we had a Shopify site, we would sell the hot sauce and then mail you bottles of hot sauce. And you know, I think there's a lot of different hot sauces on the market, but if you think about it, if only Tabasco could leverage that data and figure out what's working, you really kind of end up in a world where you have a limited number of hot sauces. But because of like something like a Shopify that empowers direct consumer sales and with all of the tooling, you know, any hot sauce company, including ours, Bacon Hot Sauce, could instantly have the same type of technology that Tabasco could have. So what Shopify brings to that DTC world, 
we want to bring effectively to data infrastructure. So you don't yeah, have yeah. to, you know, you know, if you're running a hot sauce company, you don't have to hire, say, a web developer to actually build, you know, a site. You can, for the most part, just very quickly develop a site. You could be up and running and selling in under an hour. And we want to have the same be true for your data infra. And, you know, that's not really going to change the world instantly, but I really feel great about how that's going to make it so that, you know, that doesn't mean that a small company can compete better than like a big, well-resourced company. But Uh now at least the competition is about finding insights in the data rather than the competition being like, how do I get this data to a place and how do I not spend hours and hours and hours you know, just getting started or months or weeks or yeah. years. So you, you know, democratize like, it. Exactly. So that's kind of how we kind of, you know, it's not just how we, you know, go to bed at night, but it's also like what we're excited about at our company. Yeah, I like that. And it's giving the companies that, well, it's typically the David and Goliath type of approach where the smaller ones have to compete with the big ones, with the big budgets and so on. And now they can play at, at the same level and make the best win. Really like that. So kind of, Looping back two years ago from now, that's where there was sort of nothing. I'm always fascinated how fast, I mean, there's so many startups these days that come on my podcast that have reached the stage where you are today, an incredible short amount of time. And that's, of course, because so many things are already available. And I think you're, you're contributing to that with your own platform. Because to get started, you don't have to do all the basics from scratch. So what were the choices you made to get started and to say, okay, this is what I'm going to bet on and use as standard components in my platform. And this is where I'm going to create defensible differentiation. So I think this is one of the most important questions for startups, yeah. which is when you get started, everything's like very close to what you want, but not always perfectly what you want. And you have to figure out, okay, which are the things that I need to be exactly what I want? And which are the things that are very close to what we want? So, you know, we got started, we used Stripe Atlas to incorporate in Delaware. And, you know, was everything perfect? And, you know, what our lawyers wanted, like, you know, three rounds from now? The answer is probably not really, but it was really close. So, you know, now incorporating and starting the company is one click and a few hundred dollars. That's a game changer. It's not perfect, but it does exactly what we need. So I use that as an, the incorporation is probably the least of the challenges that are interesting. Like, I think you're really talking about the technologies, but if you think about it, we have a religious bend on being, let's, you know, reinvent the wheels that we think we're experts in and not really any of the others, because it's so easy for startups to be distracted by let's do this and let's do that. And let's do this. And by the way, some of the best pivots that startups have ever made have been exactly that, which is they were trying to do something and they needed to build something on their own. And then ultimately that became the product. So like very famously Slack, yeah. you know, Stuart Butterfield was running like a largely unsuccessful you know, MMO game and said, you know, let's work on the chat app that is really empowering our development. So I do think it's important to sort of do what we've done, which is focus on the areas that you think you have a competitive advantage in or that you think you know better. So, you know, obviously we accept our payments via Stripe. We, our infrastructure is, you know, Google. We're not going to sort of, we sit and build within the, on top of Snowflake. So, you know, we're not reinventing the data warehouse. We're leveraging sort of best in class technologies. But I would say that 
you know, there is this tension, which is you have a vision for what you want to build. There are solutions that get you there. You know, we're not sort of reinventing our payroll system and we're not reinventing our email system. You know, it's like we're using sort of standard tools for, you know, what we think of as, you know, how we work, but then we're really trying to push ourselves forward, unsurprisingly on the data domain where we build specifically what we think of as the right sort of workflows. Fantastic. Yeah, that's music to my ears. And it's a very tough thing because, I mean, give a developer an opportunity to say you can do it yourself. They'll do it. They'll find arguments from it, here it's to a Tokyo. To, it's a lie to say that we don't ever do that. So, like, believe me, I think it's one of those things where it's a little bit of a bug and it's a little bit of a feature. I sort of gave you yeah. the Stuart Butterfield example. But I think, like, we like to center that around, like, hack days. So. Yeah. You know, I think one of our company okay. core values is like, we call it hack day, which basically means that we do hack days a number of times each year and we get a ton of value out of them. What that means is we do a 48 hour hack day. So we give two days, work on whatever you want. That can be like, you know, a trip to Hawaii for yourself. It can be learning a new, you know, language. It can be, you know, working on something within our product. But like the idea is, you know, what's something that's missing from our product and having that ability to have that outlet, I think is like really powerful. You know, Google used to call it 20% time, which yeah. ended up being like 120% time. But like, I think having that sort of well understood, like there will be times to sort of build adjacent things that you really want and wish we could have. And maybe it'll end up being something really important to what uh-huh. we do or a real near adjacent pivot. Maybe that statement will be true. But like knowing that that exists on your near future horizon basically helps you minimize the distractions from building sort of the nice to have or fun to have projects. And like, let's agree to working on what we think moves the ball the most for the customers. Very good. I like that approach. And of course, it's one that's been tested. I like you. I mean, the Google product is an element of that. So what has been a decision or decisions that appear to have been super important to where you are right now? Well, I think you hit on one, which is leveraging other technologies to really offer a best in class. So one of the very big differences between Mozart data and a lot of all-in-one platforms is the all-in-one starts with the idea of let's build everything and let's be good at everything. And I think like this is like almost the kiss of death because, you know, what happens is that like customers don't want good, customers want the best, you know, if all things being equal, you know, customers want to go to, you know, a best in class offering. And, you know, you might say, well, the customer won't know the difference between good and the best. They will know the difference. And maybe they don't know the difference in your marketing materials. Maybe they don't know the difference in your demo. They'll know the difference early on. And it sort of speaks to the original question, which is my second sort of adjective to describe myself is you know, sort of helpful or like community oriented. and you know, what I think of as the way to win business is you have a small contract and you expand with a combination of the startup and the impact that you're having. So as you're helpful, that sort of growing within the company ends up being sort of a no-brainer. Let me make a small interruption here. Peter just made an excellent remark about the foundational principle of his company, to focus on a meaningful problem and solve it in a way that exceeds expectations continuously. This way, it's considered the best from the start and delivers ongoing value, resulting in an extremely loyal fan base. It's a trade remarkable software companies master, 
They acknowledge that they cannot please everyone. They focus on the essence. And then they create a solution that's both valuable and desirable. And this fuels the momentum flywheel. And you can master these traits as well. The first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will start within the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. And, you know, again, like, you know, tying it back where I think we've made some great decisions have been, you know, partnering with a lot of best in class technology in order to really look every single customer in the eye and say, you could go build this yourself. This is how exactly how I would do it if I weren't using a tool like Mozart. My first suggestion is Mozart. My second suggestion is basically the components of Mozart where you make those investments. And that's kind of how we think about the world in terms of you know, what we want our product to look like. We want yep. it to be unsurprisingly best in class because there's disproportionate returns in my mind to being really best in class. Yeah, I like that analogy. And I mean, the world is, luckily the world is not all the same. Certain people will go left and certain people will go right. And that gives an opportunity for all of us. But I mean, there's absolutely a big market and a big appetite for best in class to solve specific problems in a unique way. Kind of understanding your the decisions that have been really important. What has been a very hard nut to crack in that journey? You know, I mean, obviously it starts with customers, right? So you have a chicken and egg problem, which is customers love, especially when it comes to data, which is a very valuable and asset they want to secure. You want to have a lot of proof points. So in some sense, it's a chicken and egg. It's like, well, how do you get more customers? Well, you have more proof points. Well, how do you get more proof points? Well, you have more customers. You know, for us, the sort of, it was more like the zero to three, you know, now we have a number of customers, but, you know, at the time sort of getting that first customer, which was really like our first, you know, two or three customers was the incredible challenge. So Mm -hmm. it's very easy to get people maybe to have a discussion with you to learn about your tool. Then it's hard to get people to sign up for your tool and connect very sensitive pieces of data. So to trust you and Google and Snowflake, like, you know, sort of more the former than the two ladders, but like to trust essentially the technology you're built upon And then after that, it's very hard to get somebody to pay for it, right? Like, so you really want to be building something that people are willing to pay for. So when I think about sort of the hardest nut to crack, the hardest nut to crack is often like the first dollar. So we don't have a framed first dollar insofar as largely it actually came in via Stripe. So there's no like, you know, we don't frame the email. But, you know, when I think about sort of our hot sauce company, actually the first sale wasn't the hardest. The first sale was like to my mother right? Which like doesn't quite count, but like there was a real moment where there was a dollar that was spent. And, you know, that's really, of course, you know, it's meaningful. It meant something. And then as those contracts, I think actually more important than the first dollar spent actually was the first sort of expanded contract. So, you know, a company that was using Mozart was actually getting a lot of value out of Mozart and said, we need more Mozart. And, you know, both of those moments, obviously the breaking of the ice is always like really special for companies. And then that second moment, which was a real sort of proof point moment for us, like, wow, you really, really like us. And that's a, you know, I think there were a couple of things. So, you know, people that ended up sort of sending me, you know, sort of screenshots of reports that used to take them four hours and then saying like, oh my God, just updated this in one click. 
yeah, of course you love sort of when your vision, yeah. actually it's better when your vision gets explained back to you. So yeah. actually somebody that now works at Mozart was one of our original sort of customers. And uh-huh. he was explaining to me kind of the vision for Mozart. He was explaining like, look at what, like, you know, I just did. And when I hear that back, that's like, wow, like this person was better at articulating what I was trying to do. And that's like, you know, I think that was one of sort of the most rewarding moments for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's where you see it coming alive and you see how it clicks. <laughs> I've heard it a couple of times and it really makes a difference when that moment is there. And, and a number of people start to do that. Uh, you see the momentum there. I actually what have are- like a flip of that. So I was recently at you know, a conference and somebody came up to me and they said, you know, I really don't like Mozart data. I was like, okay. And, you know, that also was pretty rewarding. You know, like you said, first of all, there is a wide range of customers and, you know, I think there's like, you know, different approaches for different people. And then they went through their sort of rationale. They said, okay, like I like to do things this way and this way and this way and this way. And that actually doesn't map up to, you know, our product offering. And that also was rewarding because the person even though the person had a lot of like things to say that I was like, ah, I don't really agree with you. And I like fundamentally think you should do it a different way. The person had put clearly a lot of thought into our offering. Yep. And it was that critique that said, okay, wow. Like we're engaging in a conversation and said like, you know, yes. Kind of like you said, you know, some people like, you know, vanilla ice cream, some people like chocolate, some people like Rocky roads some people like strawberry, you know, it's like, you know, you That's don't, fine. Yeah, that is fine. But what I thought was great was this person thought about us deeply and, you know, gave great product feedback. Like that was like, it would seem like it would be really frustrating was actually pretty rewarding too. Yeah. Because if you take that, you realize, okay, that's also then an informed decision for yourself. That's then defining a customer that is, you try to avoid in the whole schema. And once you get clarity on that, you become far more clear on who you're really for versus who you're not for. Exactly. Um, If you're trying to be for everyone, you end up being no one. So I think you nailed one of what I think of as the key moments of the company, which is, again, defining who are we building for? Yeah, such an important question. And it goes so far beyond just the demographics of a company that needs to be of this size doing this particular thing. It is really about what people care about, what they hope for, what they aspire and all of those, that combination yeah, it's the people side of things that where this makes yeah, the biggest difference. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. What has been a counterintuitive lessons that you've learned that really made a difference in this whole journey that you've done? You know, I think there are a bunch of like, you know, cliched advices that are both like good and bad. And I think you have to pick and choose your sort of moments of like when to use them and, you know, when not to. 
on the counterintuitive side, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with like, you know, speed of building and being like very intentional about the trade-offs. So, you know, one of the, you know, sort of YC mantras was always sort of like, you know, cockroach the company. So what that means is, you know, it's very hard for a salesperson to, I think, like develop like a strategy for how to sell your product. At the end of the day, you as a founder have to be able to communicate your vision. And then, you know, then you can make a copy of your sort of vision with maybe somebody that's more skilled at delivering that message, at doing the follow-up, at sort of getting somebody to sign a contract. So that is not to say our sales team doesn't have way more skills than I do on that dimension. But what I think is like counterintuitive is one view is wait until you really have the product market fit to go scale that organization. And the counterintuitive thing for us has been the SDR team, the sales team, they really help shape the product vision because they are sort of able to scale your user research. They're, yep. they're telling you what prospects are actually thinking and saying, and they're able to do it at a much greater volume than you know I did with founder-led sales. So you know there is this sort of standard advice, which is you know wait until you have product market fit and then scale up from there. And the flip of that tends to be you know higher to the moon and then hope it all works out. Now I really obviously definitely don't believe in version two, but I think if you're intentional about keeping the feedback loop from the customer. Well, now you get this sort of added benefit of a lot of sort of, you know, market feedback that you wouldn't have gotten had you just sort of set up more intermittent, you know, conversations with prospects. So, you, you know, the key that I would say is like, think of the outreach team, the sales team, the GTM team as actually like part of your sort of product development team. They serve as sort of a user research team or a prospect research team. And make that part of, again, finding out. So to go with a different YC trope, which is, you know, build things that people want, make things that people want, they will inform that for you. And you shouldn't just think of them as revenue generation or part of a funnel. You should think of them as sort of insight generation as well. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. It's so valuable to to have those feedback loops and to listen and to pay attention to that. Well, going towards making the connection to the book that I wrote, Remarkable Effect. You've been in a number of startups, yeah, in different roles. You see what works and what doesn't work. One customer, well, one startup, of course, I remember very well is Yammer. And now you've got your own company. In my book, The Remarkable Effect, I'm talking about the 10 traits that define remarkable software companies. So the companies that we start talking about and keep talking about. What have you learned on your way that is essential in order to create those type of qualities? Well, obviously, like, again, just going off the last answer, it's like customer centricness. Is always been, you know, I think one of the sort of revolutions in software over the last decade has been sort of this bottom up motion. So, again, when, like, you know, when I got started, it was all a top down motion. You would sell software to a single decision maker that could be the CIO, that could be the CEO, and then that would essentially propagate through the company. Now, so many softwares including ours, sell to a team or to a function or to an individual or, you know, so I think like, I actually typically credit like the iPhone as being the sort of real instigator of this, which is you used to get handed 
blackberries and it was no BYOD. The iPhone was such a jump over the BlackBerry that, you know, individuals started to do bring your own device and, you know, companies had to adjust. It was so powerful. It was such a movement. And, you know, I think it started with the smartphones, but ultimately became part of all sort of software. I mean, it started with devices and then it became part of software. And, you know, the biggest change you know, in my mind is this sort of bottom-up motion and how so many companies can live off of this bottom-up motion. Now, it is very closely tied to data. I'm a little mm-hmm. bit biased. You know, sometimes when you, you know, you have a hammer, you see the whole world as nails, but sometimes. I would say that's really a data-oriented, you know, function. It's the result of the ability to see the data, to understand what your customers are doing. And that informs a sort of bottom-up motion. If, you know, you can afford to sort of, and we do this at Mozart, you know, you can afford to be sort of loss leading, and that can be in the form of free trial or free, you know, freemium products. And, you know, that sort of bar of adding value before you really start to charge for value has Mm -hmm. changed the dynamic because instead of like a really valuable, valuable top-down sale, now you can invest that money in the user. You know, that's kind of how I've seen the major change in dynamic and how you truly sort of become remarkable. Yeah, fascinating. And I mean, at the end, it's the users that work with the product every single day and they'll do the word of mouth for you and they become your internal ambassadors and then do the sales for you to the right management levels. Talking about that, you know, this what I see, of course, a lot with the companies I work with, the companies that I got on my podcast, it's this ever, ever increasing bar around creating traction. You know, it's always these loops and it's the moment you go through the different phases, the bar is higher again. What have you seen as a secret or what has really worked for you to create traction? your software business? Yeah, I mean, I'd second the notion of as soon as you hit one plateau, you know, you look up and see the next one. So, you know, honestly, it is a never ending sort of pushing the boulder up the mountain. And, you know, I think it is honestly to enjoy the journey a little bit. The CEOs that I respect the most have a real just passion for like busting through walls. And honestly, I admire and I wish I had sort of more of that grit in terms of just really loving the challenge as much as sort of the trophy. So, you know, but in order to build that traction, you know, it's not that dissimilar from like really any product, which is to say, you have to prove within a small subset that you can deliver some value. Now, sometimes that small subset is defined in very obvious ways. So, you know, if I'm selling let's say like a payroll tool, you know, I worked at Zenefits, you know, I want to very narrowly focus on HR leaders at early stage companies. And, you know, that sort of narrow subset is defined by their title and their company size. Sometimes that sort of narrowly defined customer might look wildly different. And actually a lot of our customer base has a lot of different titles, a lot of different company sizes, but they're all sort of at the same point of their data journey. So, you know, you shouldn't necessarily think about sort of solving you know, the way to get traction is to be excellent for a subset. You know, that subset might look very obvious by obvious characteristics. It might look very subtle. So your next plateau comes from essentially solving like a wider set or essentially having that group, you know, grow and do kind of like you said, you're selling for you. So in general, the trick to traction is not a trick at all. It's a hard task and a hard challenge. It's to be excellent and to solve a real problem. Yeah, and to keep growing that in directions up or to the side. Completely agree. 
Getting towards the, well, one of my final questions here, from all the lessons that you've learned so far, we've already kind of dug into a couple of areas here, but if you would have to give an advice to an aspiring CEO, tech entrepreneur, or someone that actually wants to create some new energy into the company, what would be a do and a possible don't that you would share? I think, so first of all, for any aspiring entrepreneur, and this is cliched advice, but I think you have to live it. One, you are your brand. So we obviously very much saw that in the case of, you know, our hot sauce. I think I was always the number one consumer of my hot sauce. And similarly, you know, at Mozart, we're not the biggest consumers of Mozart, but we internally, of course, use Mozart data. And we have, you know, some of the best sort of per capita usage. Unsurprisingly, we want to be a very data forward company. So the first is, you know, you do have to like live your brand, right? I think and what you do with, the, you know, obviously everybody talks about dog fooding, but you really do want to understand, you know, some of your pain points that, you know, you're solving for. So I think like one of the number one things, you know, we have a company core value around self-awareness. And I think the best way that you sort of have, you know, customer awareness is to be a customer. Now that can have the flip, you know, I think the don't is sort of literally piggybacks off the do, you know, often, you know, the thing that, I'm most proud of is often like, you know, when we interview candidates, sometimes their greatest strength is also their greatest weakness. Yep. And the don't is very much like the do. So sometimes when you build a product and we did this at Yammer, at Yammer, we were the biggest per capita users of Yammer. You know, there were fortune three companies using Yammer, but you know, we were one of the most active networks sending incredible quantities of messages on our platform. You know, when I worked at ease, some of the ease employees were some of the biggest you know, consumers of, you know, our platform and our product. And, you know, we start to build for the power user. And, you know, if you really think about sort of exponential growth, what that means, and let's say, you know, you know if you're growing about 10% a month, that's tripling. So, you know, your users today are half the size of your users by the end of the year. Yeah. You know, so if you think about that, like when you build for your power users, on the one hand, you are solving real problems because you yourself are facing them, but they certainly don't represent the problems of a majority of your users. So there is this interesting tension, and this is actually sort of where the cycles in software, I think, come. You start building for your power users and you create a more challenging and difficult entry point or difficult experience to get started. And then somebody else will come and disrupt your business, effectively building the easy path into the problem that you're trying to solve. So it's this tension. It's a beautiful tension because, you know, this is sort of how progress in my mind happens. And so again, my do and my don't are exactly the same, which is be a real consumer of your product and be an expert of your product. And then don't be too obsessive with your product that you build for yourself and not for the customer. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree with you. I come from the world as well, whereby it was a lot about power users. And then you forget about the fact that there's also a group that might think that is way too complicated and you just exclude them. Very strong advice there. If there's one thing you could ask the audience, you know, people that are listening that can possibly help you, what would you ask? Well, I think the first is obviously we have lots of trials and we love for people to try us and give us feedback and to understand our product and to understand what works and what doesn't work. But in general, I'm always trying to learn from entrepreneurs, when does data become like really critical to them? So you ask a lot of entrepreneurs and they say, you know, if you ask them, do you want to be data driven? Like basically 100% will answer yes. Everybody loves data. It's a popular buzzword. 
But I think it's like, when does that decision actually happen? We're always trying to find companies at the start of their journey. And by that, I want to know when's that moment where it really clicks, where it says, okay, actually, this is no longer sort of a vitamin. This is now a painkiller that I really do want to operate my business and I want to invest in sort of the right tooling that will be around for the long run. And, you know, I think generally we love to hear not just, you know, from Mozart prospects, but just from entrepreneurs, what was that sort of moment of truth? Because that's something that, you know, we can go after and try to sort of model and understand better and sort of make more accessible and sort of look in the world for that type of signal. Strong. Yeah, completely agree. The click is indeed meet everybody at the exact point on their way. And when you ask the obvious question, everybody will say yes. But the question is like, when? And that, that's a very important thing. It can save you a lot of time. So where can people go to find out more about Mozart Data or to connect with you? Sure. So I'm Pete at MozartData.com. And the best place to check us out is MozartData.com. We have a resources page for all things data. And then, of course, a number of pages to contact us and try to trial us either you know, with talking to sort of a solutions expert or doing it on your own. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Peter. And yeah, thanks for being so open, sharing the wisdom and yeah, for a genuinely very inspiring conversation. (laughs) Thanks, a really fun conversation for me. Thanks. And this ends my conversation with Peter. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Peter Fishman, co-founder and CEO of Mozart Data. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. questions we've got answers business leadership ownership and sales can be challenging tune into the accelerate your business growth podcast to learn from the world's experts join me your host diane helbig as i chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business you'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas tips and suggestions you need to realize greater success Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network 
and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.